Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, technology. and particularly the bit in between. And welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast, with me, your host, Barry Kirby. A domain that's always held an attraction for me is agriculture, and even more so with the development of technology that's been utilised to enable fewer people on a farm to do a lot more. From GPS-enabled tractors to the use of IoT technology to ensure the soil and water have exactly what is needed and when, as well as the ability to be able to predict weather, uh, weather windows for fertilising the land and harvesting crops. And this has been really brought to the fore um, most recently with the, uh, with the Amazon series around Tlaxon's farm. More people have got a greater appreciation of really the, what a difficult job farming is. But it's also a really dangerous environment with heavy machinery that is focused on cutting, mulching, squashing, shredding, as well as even simple things like pitchforks and animals that can do really unpredictable things. Therefore, I was really keen when I read an article in December's Ergonomist about investigating non-technical skills in the farming environment. I simply really wanted to know more. So I contacted one of the authors, Jill Poots, on Twitter to see if she'd be willing to have a chat. And I'm delighted that she's been able to join us today to give us some of her insights into uh, human factors in agriculture. Hi, Jill, and thank you for being here today. No problem. Hello, Barry. Thanks for having me. No worries. So... Before we get stuck into uh, into the farming piece itself, um, let's find out a bit more about you. So what is it you're doing at the moment? So at the moment, I'm a postgraduate PhD researcher in the Psychology Applied to Safety and Health Lab at Leeds Beckett University. So I'm not um, investigating agriculture at the moment. I'm actually working on a project in telemedicine, oh, cool. specifically telephone triage. And I'm using systems thinking to understand the risks and propose some interventions um, in telephone triage work. That's a that is a bit of a jump from the agriculture. Why, why did you um why, why have you gone into that topic to go to do further research in? Um, I think I just I recognise that there there's still a long way to go with um human factors in healthcare, and specifically I think in primary care and these new kind of um distributed models of telemedicine, you know, where the the patient and the professional aren't necessarily geographically co-present so I think um, I was really just interested in in you know paving the way for some of that research so I specifically um, wanted to focus on healthcare this time I also joke that I'm just moving around you know like collecting industries I did a little bit in oil and gas as well so just hopping from one thing to another um without going off on a rant here and talking too much but um no but I think like there's a lot one of the things I really like about human factors is how much we can learn from other industries and the the collegiality of it so so I sort of just saw um an entry point for me into human factors research through healthcare. That's really interesting. And you are absolutely spot on with that, that the one of the beauties I think about working in this domain is you can learn one thing in say oil and gas or nuclear or something like that and transfer that. And a lot of the processes are, are very, you know, if, even if not exactly the same, but very similar, but you can apply them. And actually the, the, the general role about what we do about getting stuck into the center of things and making things better is applicable, is ubiquitous across all sorts of domains. Um, so it sounds like you've, you've got, um, your fingers in a number of pies in a number of domains. How did you, um, get into human factors in the first place? What, what, what drew you towards it? Um, so I studied psychology at the university of Aberdeen. 
So, um, apologies, my phone was ringing there. It's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I studied um, psychology and I think like a lot of psychology students, I went into psychology thinking I'm going to be a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, when I got there and I got to Aberdeen at the time, I think they rebranded it, but they had the Industrial Psychology Research Centre. Um, which investigated human factors, particularly in aviation and oil and gas. They still do that sort of work up there. And I remember, I think, sort of year two or year three, having my first um, lecture on human factors. And I think something just really clicked for me, to be quite honest. I think maybe it was the sort of the farming background and, and the real sort of practicality and the application of human factors um but i just remember being in my first lecture and thinking oh this is really really interesting especially even the ergonomic side of it the more sort of stuff um about you know working at temperature and in extreme environments and that type of thing i find really really interesting so i kind of shifted them my focus um towards more human factors research rather than clinical okay that, that, yeah that it seems to be when we talk to a lot of people that you kind of get bitten by the bug um, you said you, you, you go through your entire life not realizing it exists, but as soon as you find out about it, a lot of people really want to dive into it. So, yeah. so have you always been involved in academia then through your through your career so far? Then, or have you um, um, had a practical aspect, or what's been the career path? So, I am um, a real advocate. I have to say, for the squiggly career, I don't know if you've heard of that, but Helen Tupper and Sarah Ellis have a book called The Squiggly Career. It's worth checking out. About how we're no longer climbing a ladder we're kind of going backwards and forwards in all different shapes and I think so far that definitely fits my career so I started off as I said sort of interested in human factors and focused my undergraduate thesis on um, agriculture um, which we'll talk a bit more about I'm sure um, from that uh, I was that's a research assistant role that I got at Aberdeen um, I was successful in getting an internship with an oil and gas company and that was very much focused on sort of the applied work of a human factors professional. So for a lot of that time, I was sort of shadowing and supporting um, a human factors specialist in that environment. So that got me exposure to the actual methods that an applied human factors specialist uses. Um, one thing I really liked when I was there was um, I got to develop some human factors awareness training and I got to deliver that to people all over the, com- the company. Um, so I decided at the end of university that I didn't actually know what exactly I wanted to do, but I knew that I liked that sort of training people and instruction. So I actually went into teaching um, and I got a role in a graduate scheme Um, which focuses on education inequality and raising attainment in England. And I um, started teaching science and psychology, and I did that for about four and a half years. So I was always looking to come back to do a PhD um, when the time was right and when I saw something. So I was living in Malaysia, um, and I was keeping an eye out for some human factors-specific PhDs to get back into that and came across this one and here I am so it's been a bit squiggly a bit of human factors a bit of um teaching and and that sort of thing and a few other random rules thrown in there too but um but very much made made my way back to my my field that I want to be in that's really cool because it you're right it's the having the ability to dip into and out of different things and again I think it just makes you um makes it a lot richer doesn't it I think that the whole idea of just that a to b career 
um, a, I just don't think exists anymore. They, you don't sit in a in a company or a number of companies now and just go that way. But also, I think it's it's also probably a bit bo- is it a bit boring to do that as well? You know, it's it's you know you can get a much richer thing just bouncing around from um, place to place. And one of the other things I like about the human factors domain as well is you can go from company to company, and there's no um, there's no nastiness involved. You know, you, you're almost expected to go um, and see different companies and, and take that learning with you. And um, it's a really welcoming place to go to different places. So, no, I'm, but I'm, I'm uh, very jealous of the uh, of some of the experiences you've had there. That that sounds fun, uh, fantastic. Um, obviously, you may may or may not have noticed we've had this 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 pandemic over the past uh, uh, past couple of years. How have you found um, working through that? Because obviously, with with some of the stuff you've been doing. Has it given you any um, unique challenges or uh, or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think in the early days, a lot of it was just coping with change and change overnight, really, wasn't it? I mean, I remember I was I was teaching at the time and we got brought into a big room and just basically told, okay, the country's going to lockdown tomorrow, so we're all online. We've never done it before. We'll figure it out as we go. Um <laughs> And then I think, you know, I started my PhD um, remotely from Malaysia as well before I I came home. And that was a challenge as well, this sort of remote working, but also against a time difference of eight hours and and that type of thing. So I think one thing that's kind of where a lot of people have sort of, you know, either sunk or swam, you know, is is around the technology and that Mm. sort of having to flip between that sort of online, offline. I think that was certainly a challenge for me, the kind of dipping in and out of real life um, teaching or research and then back behind the screen. And I know we're we're kind of not through that exactly yet, Um, but that was one of the, the most difficult things, I think. Um, but also something, you know, to embrace. I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased with the, the amount of technology I've been able to get, you know, my head around and use well, I think. And I think we're all, as researchers, trying to understand, you know, how we can do things remotely and reaping the benefits of that. I mean, obviously, you've got things like um, video conferencing, which can actually do transcriptions um, and that type of thing. So we're, we're trying to, to use all of these tools to our advantage, I think. Yeah, I think it's it has been certainly a journey in in many ways of learning how to do things differently. And I think now is going to be that um, that evolution now is to what does the new normal look like? And I know it's a probably mo- a cliched phrase at the moment, but it's um, it's certainly very much trying to understand that balance of yes, do you want to do something in person, but actually you could do something remotely and actually be more efficient. And um, certainly we've had it this week where you've you know do do you need to go and travel two hours down the road for a meeting where it'd be nice to do it. But actually, do you really need to? And could you could you get them four hours back, two hours there, two hours back? Um, it gives us gives us new challenges. But um, anyway, right. What we'll do is we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about um, your, the main topic around around farming. So we'll be right back. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. And welcome back. And we talked to Jill Poots about the application of human factors in farming. So to set the scene a bit for us, Jill, what 
what are the risks in farming? I guess it sounds a bit obvious, but you know, what 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 are we actually talking about? I mean, I think you say it sounds obvious, but I, I've actually found that a lot of people are very unaware of the risks and people are always really surprised when I tell them that agriculture is, is probably the most dangerous or hazardous industry to work in. So um, the workplace fatality rate for agriculture is 20 times the all industry rate in the UK wow. um, with around 8.5 per 100,000 um, workers might die at work. So um it is really shocking it, it certainly shocked me when i first sort of looked at the, st the statistics the main hazards seem to be um related to slurry um livestock machinery um and working at height um so that's something that um you know the hse tell us mm -hmm. but it was also something that we found in in our early study and other things that were mentioned were um things like children on the farm for example um, but mainly those sort of slurry, um, livestock machinery and um, slips, trips and falls, which I think, you know, slips, trips and falls are probably a problem in a lot of different industries. Yeah. And um, so those are certainly the main ones. So, because it's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the whole environment, you, you almost don't think of it um, in the same way as a normal uh, normal industry because so many people, you know, it's, it's, it's literally their livelihoods. They live, breathe, everything on the farm. It's the, the, the families are involved. Um, and so, you know, it's it, and it's it's such a rugged place. You know, you see the farmyard and, and all that sort of stuff. And there's a lot of make do and mend as well as as everything that goes on. So, to, so to see it objectively as an industry, I guess, is is got to be a, a, a different challenge in its own right. Yeah, I think so, and I think that that's where maybe the difficulty comes in. We certainly spoke about this at our Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland um, working group um, through the CIHF. You know, how do you actually get in touch with farmers? Because mm. it's not like one big company; it's lots of little, like you say, family-run businesses. Um, I think something that you know is done well is sort of the the advertising, particularly around. Um, around here in, in Northern Ireland where I'm from, you know, we do have a great campaign about you know, stop and think safe and safe stands for slurry animals, um, falls and equipment. So cool. um so I think we have that sort of thing um which is which is done really well. And we found in our um early study that Amy Irwin and I did that farmers were aware of the risks or at least, you know, they, they could tell us what the risks are and, and the risks kind of echoed what was was being campaigned so um so that sort of thing is is a good sort of initiative to have so, so you're talking about engaging with farmers then is farming is it an industry that's open to human factors intervention are they actually willing to talk to us and listen to the advice that you give them or is it a bit of a closed shop how, how, how have you found that i think um i think like it, it varies i think um most of so we we carried out for our first study we interviewed 30 farmers in um scotland and northern ireland and obviously there there's been a lot more research since but the earliest study um which i was directly involved in um everyone sort of seemed very most people seemed really um open to this idea i think one of the issues and one of the things that drew my attention to agriculture was that you know, in terms of workplace fatalities, if we look at other industries, it sort of has fallen a lot in the last, say, 30 years. Mm. Agriculture, to an extent, has fallen, but it's kind of on this sort of 
like almost a straight line. So, um, so I think I think people recognise that actually, well, equipment is getting safer. I mean, one of the things we looked at um, was sort of tractor no go go scenarios. You know, given vignettes of you know, would yep. you do this? Would you if you're tired, for example, would you operate a tractor? And most farmers said, you know, you'd you'd be mad to not use something like a a PTO guard that fits on the back of the tractor so that your arms and things don't get stuck in it. <laughs> um, you know, um, so most most said that and and showed some awareness. So I think I think um, the point I'm getting to is, you know, something else is needed. So we're making equipment that is safer. We're aware of these risks. So that's where I think the human factor in agriculture paper came in and and why there was a need for that. It was to understand, you know, okay, how can, but what other sort of tweaks? And that's, I think, a lot of what Human Factors is, is kind of this sort of maybe lean sort of process. Okay, well, let, let's, you know, mitigate error by lots of tiny different things. And, and you know, that should improve um, our outcomes. So, see, I think most are open to it. Um, of course, there were, you know, the odd one or two who were like, I don't understand what you're doing here and I don't know that it's useful. But um, but I think that would be the same in any industry. I don't think that's farming per se. No, yes, that's definitely everywhere. <laughs> um, we're going to talk a little bit about non-technical skills um, in farming, but before we get into the uh, into NTS in farming, could you just give us a quick reminder on, on what non-technical skills are? Absolutely. So um, non-technical skills are social and cognitive skills that complement technical skills. So examples of these are teamwork, fatigue and stress management, situational awareness, um, decision-making, leadership. Um, so those are all non-technical skills. So how have you applied that in the, or looked at that in the, in the farming domain then? Yeah, so in that first study, we, we used the critical incident technique um, by Flanagan to um, interview farmers. We asked them about their um, sort of incidents that had occurred and also near misses. And we took the transcripts of those and coded them for these non-technical skills to, to understand, well, are non-technical skills used by agriculture? If so, what non-technical skills are important in agriculture? Are there any differences between you know, the farm demographics, small farms, larger farms, team workers, loan workers, for example? Um, so, so we did that in the first study, um, which I was involved with we looked as well at sort of predictors of these non-technical skills, you know, things like attitudes and personality traits. Does that actually affect non-technical skills in agriculture? And since then, you know, it's really grown um, from that. And Dr. Amy Irwin at the University of Aberdeen has developed, you know, a behavioral marker system called Flints, where we can actually measure non-technical skills in agriculture. That's really cool. So, when you were engaging the engaging with the farmers, then how um, receptive were they to giving you know, being I guess giving you that honest information that you needed? Um, I, I guess the main reason for asking is I guess you you see a lot of um, small business owners and things like that, and generally they will just get on and get the job done. And you hear, certainly hear of farmers working you know late into the night in in the morning just because the crop needs to be got in or the animals need to be gathered or whatever it is. So how 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 open were they with you uh, in, in your engagement? Um, 
So I think, again, speaking like like we did before, the majority were really open and honest. I think what was really um, interesting was, you know, they didn't hold, they didn't seem to try to, to hide anything. I think they all knew it was a dangerous industry. Most people um, and the majority reported daily, um, if not sort of weekly incidents, you know, minor injuries, cuts, bruises, near misses, that type of thing. So they were very open about, you know, the... Um, the scale of um, safety in agriculture and the risks that are present. Um, and I think everyone had something, you know, some um, near miss or some incident. Um, and most people were able to give both about, you know, um, something that had there, had happened them or directly impacted their, their family or their team. So, um, so I think they were, they were pretty open and sharing, um, you know, how they, they find the job. And and those things that you mentioned did come up as well about yeah. um, stress and fatigue. I mean, it's a time-pressured role, really. So so it's very important to talk about fatigue. That's really cool, yes, because the, the, as, as always, the better engagement you get, then the better outcomes you can you can deliver. So given what you've learned so far then, and, and obviously your own experience, where as HR practitioners can we have the most impact in the farming domain, do you think? I think there's still a, a long way to go with um, awareness. So I think one of the things that human factors practitioners could contribute to agriculture is just raising awareness of what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sort of like the, the other, the reverse is true as well. I think agriculture, you know, could, could also um, lend itself to, you know, educating the rest of the nation about what's what you know they do explicitly. So that's where you know, things like Clarkson's Farm that you mentioned earlier is really important. You at know, raising awareness of the risks and and of the the diversity of the role in terms of tasks and and jobs and things. I mean, a lot of farmers sort of double up as builders and engineers and roofers and yeah. and everything. So so it is a difficult job. Um, but I think probably with human factors practitioners. Um, certainly raising a lot more awareness of of just sort of like these non-technical skills for example or investigating the usability of equipment I don't know that there's very much in that human error assessments that type Mm. of thing hasn't really gone on um, as far as I'm aware so I think there's a lot of room for human factors to have an input into um, agriculture. That sounds really inspiring a, a a fertile domain if you will um sorry i'll i'll, I'll get to it um you you alluded to it earlier so why why the interest in in agriculture why what what's your background that got in it that's uh, made you wanted it want to uh, study this yeah so um well i'm i grew up on a farm um i i'm a farmer's daughter and mm-hmm. um, if you saw the lights just go off that's because the milking machine has just started outside um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I guess I suppose um without sort of dropping my extended family in it um I suppose I'm just well used to what the hazards are you yeah. know and I think I mean I just I remember I was talking earlier on about how you know in a human factors lecture you know something just clicked and when it came to thinking about my own thesis I was like well, you know, agriculture is a hazardous industry, um, so there must be lots of human factors research in agriculture. How could people not do that? And then I went and had a look at the literature, um, you know, and, and obviously um, there wasn't very much. So, so I think that was kind of really what um, made me want to get into it. Um, you know, my own sort of area has been affected by um, 
agricultural fatalities. Um, for example, the rugby player Nevin Spence and um, his family knew were, were killed in a tragic slurry accident around the time that I was sort of choosing a direction for my thesis. So it was very much in everybody's you know, hearts and minds about the, the dangers of agriculture, at least in this area. So, so that was one of the main drivers for it as well. I was also really involved in young farmers clubs, both in Ulster and in Scotland. Um, so I was really passionate about the industry. I mean, I still, I still am. I'm not working in the industry um, <laughs> anymore, but um, I just, I was really involved at the time, and I just, I couldn't believe it when you know, I, I just felt like no one's paying attention to this, and I wanted to, you know, make people pay attention to this. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, and you can. It's always that um, that personal experience, which if you can get that behind you, can really drive you through um, through this type of research and give you a real passion for it. So you've you've in the um, in the look at the the medical domain at the moment. Do you think you there is some more uh, human factors in agricultural research lurking in there somewhere, or, or what does the future hold in that area for you? Do for you? Do you think for me specifically? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love um, being able to talk about that those early research studies and kind of reviving it a little bit because obviously when I was um, teaching and kind of wasn't involved directly in human factors, that sort of fell off the radar. So it's been amazing to connect with, you know, the Chartered Institute and be able to share this research and um, reconnect with Amy Irwin and um, Alinka Roxandra Tone who are involved in this research still and and find out about what they're doing um I think I I don't know I it's a very hard um question to answer you've put me on the spot there um I mean I would never say never about going back into agriculture it's still it's still a an industry I'm really passionate about um and I think there there's so much more to be done as I mentioned in terms of things like tasks specific um, investigations, human error assessments, usability, all of those things I mentioned um, are really, really important. And I think there's there's a whole other, you know, um, area of agriculture that psychology could feed into. You know, there's obviously like an issue with rural mental health. So again, I'm, I'm really passionate about that. So I guess I'll just, I'll see how I get on <laughs> with the PhD and um, I'll get back to you in a year or two, Barry, and let you know where I am. That's cool. I, I, that that'll be really good fun to uh, check in and see and see and see where the uh, the squiggly line's gone now. Yeah. Um, so just to sort of uh, wrap up, then, what do you? Um, I, I'm going to be asking these questions to all the uh, everybody, everyone I interview. So we, it's a really uh, clever feature called the final three because it's the final three questions. Um, what is your go-to book or paper or reference? And it can be technical or it could be a fiction book um, that you keep on going back to. Um, so I'd have to say it's the Safety at the Sharp End book by Professor Rona Flynn and her colleagues. Um, I know I'm really plugging Aberdeen here. I'm not meant, like I'm not intending to, but even though my research at the moment isn't specifically focused on non-technical skills, I still go back to that handbook to look at the sort of methodologies um, for my own research. So that's my go-to. Cool. Um, if you could go back and give yourself some advice... What would you? What advice would you give to um, your, the younger Jill? I think it would be about my squiggly career, and I think that's something I sort of um, would go back and tell any undergraduate. Like, it will be okay. You'll you'll end up where you're supposed to end up, and you'll collect lots of great skills um, along the way. 
Um, so that's one thing I would probably go back and say, don't worry, you're fine. You're on the right path, even if it doesn't feel like it. Yes, trust yourself, I guess, is the is a underpinning thing there, isn't it? Um, so finally, who would you, maybe because this makes my life a lot easier, um, who would you suggest we interview next? Who would, people, who would you like to hear, hear us interview? I think I'd really like to hear... Um, Amy Irwin and um, Alenka Ruxandertone. I think it'd be really nice to hear about how they've really driven this research forward and what they're up to now. Um, so that would be that'd be really good. Brilliant. I'll um, I'll try and get in touch with them and see, and see what we can sort out. Um, <laughs> so so thank you, Jill. Really, really appreciate your time. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to know more about what you're doing and what your squiggly career is up to? Absolutely. So um, on Twitter, so I'm jputsy, P-O-T-S-Y on Twitter um, or LinkedIn. You can find me. I don't think there are many Jill Putses in the world, so it should be okay. <laughs> cool. And all, um, all of Jill's details will be on her guest profile uh, when this episode um, is up on the website. So just to finish off then, we just to let everybody know that we're going to be at the Ergonomics Conference. The Ergonomics New Factors Conference is going to be in Birmingham um, for the live element um, on the 25th and 26th of April, where hopefully we'll be sitting down to interview some of the guest speakers, uh, as well as get reactions and insights from some of the attendees. Um, I'm kind of hoping that I'll be taking a microphone into the bar and seeing what happens. We'll see if I can get away with it. Um, so if you're going, then do drop into our studio. Apparently we're going to have a, a space and everything, and we might have some, I don't know, like roller banners and who knows what. We, it might even look vaguely efficient. Um, so do, do drop in and say hi. Um, if you're not going, then keep an eye on the social links uh, to get our latest content, because we hope to be pushing out a load of stuff there. But for now, uh, thank you very much for your time, Jill. Really, really appreciate it. And I will see and, and hear everybody on the next episode. Thank you for listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us on social media such as Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook at 1202 Podcast. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.